But for the regulars, you will know that we have been um, dealing with the book of 2 Corinthians in the past what, two, more than two months now. And we have finished the last chapter last week with Paul Barker. Uh, this week, what we're going to do is just do a, do a recap on what we, have been, what we have done in the last two months. And next week onwards, we'll be starting a new series on the book of Esther. Okay, on the book of Esther. And for those of you, if this is your first sermon on 2 Corinthians, uh, you, you can do all your catch-ups on the whole of 2 Corinthians series online. All our sermons are all uploaded online. And we have quite a good privilege this year for 2 Corinthians series because it's a wide range of speakers that, that spoke from this pulpit. We have Paul Barker, we have Andrew Reid, we have Flavian, and we have a whole range of uh, smack preachers who are there. So can I recommend you to go to this uh, online and you can get them there. All right? Okay, let me pray as, uh, as we look at God's Word this morning. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. Father, we thank you for your word that has so changed and transformed, correct and rebuked the Corinthians. Father, we thank you for your word that has so changed and transformed, correct and rebuked us over the past two months. We pray, Father, that as we glance through the whole book uh, and look at the few themes as, as uh, has come up over the past two months, that you will continue to work by your Spirit uh, to change and transform us into the likeness of, of Christ, to prepare us for glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There won't be one passage that I'll be sticking to uh, this morning because we're doing a, a whole script. Of, of the whole book. Besides being the congregational pastor of SMAC2, uh, one of the key ministries that I'm involved in is UCF. UCF is a ministry in our cathedral that seeks to make disciples, specifically among the college and university students. This year, one of our focus in UCF has been to encourage and to organize the students into what we call discipleship groups. Uh, each of these groups comprises of three to four members. My group, for example, is myself and three other UM students that we, week, we meet weekly on campus. Now, the reason I tell you that is that another name for these discipleship groups is called fight clubs. In fact, in the material that we use, whenever we kickstart a, uh, a new group, the material has the word fight club printed big, bold font right in front of the material. And in some of the material, it even has a picture of a boxing glove on it. Well, I can see some worried faces because it's Mac 1, especially the, fate, the parents among us. Please don't be and don't panic and don't report me to Andrew Chia. It is purely metaphorical. We are simply picking up Apostle Paul's language of fighting the good fight of the faith. In these small groups, as we read the Bible and pray and confess our sins together, our aim is to support one another in our fight to believe in the gospel. We fight to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is our death and our resurrection. We fight to believe that Jesus is more precious than anything else that the world has to offer. 
that is more satisfying and more thrilling. And now, does that sound familiar to you? Isn't that your experience of the Christian life as well? That believing the gospel is not a passive, one-time decision. It is an active, continual fight for the faith, for faith in God's Word. I was in Singapore last week, uh, just for a short trip. One day I was coming down a very high escalator, going down to the train station. From my vantage point, the people looked like swarms of insects, all moving smoothly and harmoniously in the same direction. And I was one of the millions. It was a very long escalator, and so I had time to daydream and wonder. <laughs> so I tried to visualize how difficult it would be if I were to turn around and move against the crowd, against the flow, against the masses, disrupting the harmony of the masses. Have you ever tried that? Can you imagine how that would feel? Doesn't that sound just like the Christian life? Every single day, disciples of Jesus have to fight against the lies that our world and our culture bashes us with, left, right, and center. Until Jesus returns, Christians fight every day. We don't fight for salvation. We fight from salvation. But it's still a fight, not a stroll in the park. We fight because the unbelieving world does not believe what we believe. We fight because they don't value what God values. They don't evaluate the way that God evaluates. Now, if you were, to, uh, if you were asked what 2 Corinthians that you've been reading is about, what would you say? What is Paul's underlying concern and the purpose of writing a letter? Well, I would say that this letter is a fight. You see, the problem with the church in Corinth is this. When you read 1 and 2 Corinthians together, we get a picture that the Christians there were still not comfortable in living out the scandal of the cross. They were still soaking in and drowning in worldly values, worldly expectations, and worldly standards. So much that they seemed to lose grip of the gospel. As a church, they were just drifting along with the masses, carried by the crossless and Christless culture of that day. So in this letter, Paul had to put on a fight in order to spur, in order to provoke them to turn around and fight. Paul fights to authenticate his apostleship. We saw that. He fights to call the Corinthians back to Christ crucified, back to being gospel-centered in their life and in their ministry. In this fight, Paul aims to strengthen them to believe again in the foolishness and in the weakness of the cross, which was hard for them to believe. In the past four months, I hope you have found that this letter is very relevant for us today. It almost feels like it's speaking into our situation. Like the Corinthians church, smack is in constant danger of being swept along by our Christless culture. And we end up shaping and, shaping and evaluating our life, our ministry. We evaluate each other according to worldly values and worldly standards. Today, as we recap and closes up the series, I've picked just four themes. On your outline, there are five, but I chicken out, so I pull out one, <laughs> the one in the middle, so there are four left, okay? Each of these themes should reveal to us drastically, how drastically counter-cultural 
the nature of the gospel is, which sets Christians up to be fighters as we live as aliens and strangers in this world. So first stop, 2 Corinthians reminds us that the Christian life and Christian ministry must be cruciform because the apostolic gospel is cruciform. Well, the word cruciform simply means to take the shape of the cross, the pattern of the crucified Christ. How can someone so weak, with so much suffering, so dull and inarticulate, and someone even suffer, suffering with a thorn in the flesh, possibly be an agent of power for the God's glorious power, uh, gospel? There's no way that he can be that. That's what the Corinthians are saying. So throughout the whole letter, Paul had to explain to them that contrary to popular cultural belief, sorry, I lost my thoughts there, Cont contrary to what the super apostles were saying, his weakness and his suffering is actually identifying him with Christ. It authenticates his message. Paul had to repeatedly defend and to argue that the hardships, the beatings, the stoning and the imprisonments, the hunger and the thirst, the anxieties, the sleepless nights, the burdens and the despair, the humiliation and the insults, all the afflictions that he endured for the gospel actually show that he is a genuine apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul was seriously very concerned for the Corinthians because if they don't appreciate his cross-shaped life and ministry demonstrated in weakness and in suffering, then how can they understand the cross and the weakness and suffering of Christ? Paul wants them to see that God is in fact powerful, powerfully at work through his weaknesses, just as God was powerfully at work through Christ's suffering. Paul may seem weak and nothing, but appearances are deceiving. The cross seems to prove that God is weak and foolish, but in reality, it is the power and the wisdom of God. Do you notice that Paul doesn't try to hide his humiliation and afflictions, nor his hardships and his faults? Rather, he boasts in his deficiencies. Why? Well, because they show most clearly how the powerful God is at work in him and through him. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weaknesses. Of course, Paul is weak. He is simply a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to him. Of course, Paul is weak for he is carrying in his body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in his body. It's worth reflecting in your life and my life and our ministry, do you show your weaknesses and humiliations and point people to God? Or do you hide them so that you can point people to how great you are or how great I am? Paul points people to his humiliation and his weakness to display that God is great and he isn't. He's just a jar of clay. Christian life is cruciform to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Notice that God raises the 
dead. The dead, not those who are already exalted. It is only when things are at their worst, when human resources are exhausted, then one is most receptive to learning the power of God. God had to strip Paul off his formal confidence in himself, Hebrew of Hebrews, blameless as a Pharisee, before Paul finally learned humility and opened himself up to the power of God. As one writer puts it, God rescues us by shattering the fortified walls of our own strength, our own wisdom, and our own righteousness and right uprightness and make us slaves of Christ. Or as the way that Martin Luther puts it, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. So that when a Christian boasts, he can only boast in God. Now, the Corinthians didn't understand what it means to be Christian. That Christian bear the glorious imprint of the cross in their life and ministry. How about us in smack? Is our life and our ministry cruciform? What do we boast about in smack? What do you boast in? Do we reflect the paradox of the cross, which is completely countercultural? Victory comes in defeat, glory comes in humiliation, joy comes in suffering. Wise is to become fools to become truly wise. Rich is to become poor so that the poor might become rich. Secondly, the 2 Corinthians also reminds us of the Christian life and reminds us that the Christian life and ministry is future focus. Future focus. Paul said this. Let me read to you from 4.14. God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up also with Jesus. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, even though Paul sees his outer nature wasting away, literally, through the persecutions and the beatings that he suffered, through the hardships and hunger and thirst and the shipwreck, Paul does not lose heart. In fact, he continues to spend and being spent himself for the sake of the gospel. Why? Well, because he believes in the future resurrection of the dead. He trusts in the future exhortation. He awaits the future reigning with Christ. Paul's life is future-oriented. He endures suffering because of his conviction that God is at work in and through his suffering for a future good. A future so great that, at the, that all the present suffering seems light and momentary. He doesn't live for the here and now. 
Now, it is very easy, I think, and don't you think, that Christians can lose heart easily. We lose heart amid suffering for the sake of the gospel. The world seems to be winning, and you are losing out. The world seems to be getting the most out of their life here and now, and you are wasting it away. Persevering in a life of self-denial and suffering for the gospel in going against the flow, it's very difficult to sustain. Daily basis. But thanks be to God, Christians are willing and motivated to die to self daily because there is a glorious future, heavenly life. An eternal glory that outweighs the burden of this world. So like Paul, everyday Christians like you and me, we have to fight in this regard. Fight against the lies that our world spend billions to tell us every day. Fight to believe that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal way of glory beyond comparison. We have to fight to believe that the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. No one is telling us that except the Bible and one another. If we don't fight, our desire for the pleasures of the present will grow so strong that we will find it almost impossible to imagine that the life with God in the world to come could be incomparably better than what we hope to experience in this world. And that would be very sad. Thirdly, 2 Corinthians also reminds us that Christian's life belongs exclusively to Christ. Let me read from 6.14. Paul says there, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what in common has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with unbeliever? What union has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and separate them, separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean things. Now, the crux of what Paul said there is this. He said, Corinthians, I want you to recognize and I want you to remember that you are the church of the living God. God lives among you in this community. You belong to Christ. That is who you are. So stop hitching yourself with any other gods. Cut yourself off from all idolatry. Be holy. Be different from the blinded pagan world. The Corinthians need to have a bigger picture of who they are. The final stage of God's unfolding plan for the entire world is finally here. And at the center of that plan is the church the new people of God who exist to glorify Him, among whom His Spirit actually dwells. 
Well, the problem in Corinth becomes clearer, I think, when we compare them with another church. Say we compare them with Thessalonians. In Thessalonica, the church experienced conflict with outsiders. They felt the stink of being alienated by the society. The society were hostile towards them. Whereas in Corinth, they seemed to be in relative peace. They were getting along well with their community. They participated in feasts in the pagan temples. They, they shared common criteria about evaluating leaders. They appeared to be too well integrated into the pagan society. They seemed to value good relationships with the pagans above their loyalty to the one true God. Overall, their faith or their new faith required no significant social or moral realignment of their faith, of their life. Business goes on as usual. They just go with the flow. They don't deny God outright, but they just worship Him alongside others. But Paul says no. Fellowship with God excludes all other fellowship. The one and only holy God lives among you now, the church. There must be no room for any other idols. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one or love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. It's the same principle. Fighting against idols in our lives, in my own life and in your life, I think, is a spiritual and a communal fight. Most, if not all of here in Smack, I believe, like the Corinthians, will not outrightly reject God and worship another idol. We are similar to the Corinthians, that is, we double date. We are, and sometimes myself can get pretty comfortable with double dating. Actually, it's not double dating, it's a bad image. It is more like keeping a mistress. Because double dates is not secretive, mistresses are. So what I think or I need to do more in fighting is that we need to preach the gospel of grace to each other. We need to preach the gospel of grace to one another, especially in small group, especially in close relationship of love and trust. Because only under the shelter of grace can we become people who dare to expose our idols to one another. And only when we do that can we then ask for support in the form of prayers because it's a spiritual fight and accountability to unyoke with these idols. So I think the fight today, or even back then, against idols is a spiritual and a communal fight. Smack is a church of the living God. God lives amongst us in this community. There is only space for God and for no idols. Fourthly and lastly, 2 Corinthians also reminds us of the Christian life and ministry as self-giving. Self-giving. We see this theme played out especially in chapters 8 and 9 where Paul talked about the collection for the Jerusalem funding project. Let me read to you from 8.1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, the abundance of joy and the extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, as of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. In its original setting, Paul was exhorting the Corinthians to be generous by contributing financially to the Jerusalem fund. But what is said here, the principle goes beyond the giving of money. It extends to the giving of the whole self. It reveals to us the self-giving nature of the Christian life and ministry. Paul talked about the Macedonian Christians. They were in severe afflictions. They were suffering in extreme poverty, very likely due to ostracism and persecution against them as being followers of Christ. And in the midst of that suffering, God's grace came upon them, God's grace lightened the afflictions, and God's grace removed their deep poverty. Did it say that? No, it didn't. Instead, God's grace opened their hearts and their wallets to others. As a result, despite their own difficulties, they did not turn inward. Instead, their concern was for others. They willingly and joyfully sacrificed for them. And instead of pleading poverty to evade giving, they pleaded with Paul to give beyond their means. I think that this is insane. How about you? It is counter-logic, it is counter-cultural, and it is counter-intuitive. And the reason behind their insanity is that they have given first themselves to Christ, that is, their hearts have been freed by the gospel and fired up for God's grace, by God's grace. 8.9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The sacrifice of the Macedonians is one thing. But the sacrifice of Christ is another. Thomas Cranfield puts it this way. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ denotes the utterly undeserved, unvaryingly, unvaryingly and inexhaustible goodwill of God, active in and through Jesus Christ. It sums up God's merciful action towards sinful humanity. You see, when we have been recipients of such undeserved grace, how can true Christians shut their hearts or wallets to brothers and sisters in need or begrudge every penny they, shall share, they may share with others? God's lavish grace towards us in the gift of grace and the depth of Christ's sacrifice requires that Christians be liberal in their giving to others. Any half-hearted response ill befits the total sacrifice that Christ made for us. That's what Cranfield said. Christ's sacrifice motivates the suffering Macedonians to give. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
The self-emptying of Christ for Christians leads Christians to empty their pockets and their lives to others. Apostle Paul followed Christ's example. He emptied himself, spent and being spent. He bore hardships to reach others with the gospel. Why did he do that? He did that because he followed a master. A master who, though he was God, did not count equality with God as something to be grabs. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human nature form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In this letter, Paul asked the Corinthians to only give a fair share, if you remember. Say, it's a fair share that you can give. A proportion of what they have for the fun. But he reminded them that Christ did not give his fair share. Christ gave way out of proportion. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. This mercy all immense and free, oh my God, it found out me. Many of you here know that uh, my mother-in-law fell sick recently. Uh, she was first diagnosed with kidney stones. Later, she was found. They found, not sure. Uh, they found that she has a common bowel duct cancer. Um, she suffered a sepsis, and we expected her to die. I quickly brought the kids down to join Vivian in Singapore. It was all very sudden. For me and Vivian, we suffered from shock and from grief. Now, during this time, where we were suffering, we received a lot of support from the church. Church family, our friends in Singapore just dropped everything and they came to support. I have many stories of how sacrificial the church has been, but let me just share one with you. One morning in the hospital, my mother-in-law asked me, where are the kids? I said, they are with my church friends in Malaysia, from Malaysia. She said, oh, you have sent them back. I said, no, I did not. My church friend from Malaysia came down to help mine our kids. They took the bus down without even consulting us. They booked a hotel that's near the hospital, and then they took our kids. Then mom was shocked, and then she, her face turned to being burdened. She said, wow, how am I ever going to repay them? I was ecstatic, but I tried to keep it in to play cool because it was such a wonderful opportunity to boast about God. So I said, Mom, you don't need to repay them. They don't expect repayment. They love because they have been loved by God. They sacrifice because they know a sacrificing God. They are convinced that Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Well, in the following days, mom just kept hearing more and more of such sacrificial stories involving many other church friends. You see, the Christian life is self-giving, filled by the grace of God in which we have received from God. The world cannot understand this. My in-law cannot believe this. Her world is one whereby I scratch your back and now it's your turn to scratch my back. Her world is one whereby blood is thicker than water. I can expect my own blood family to sacrifice for me, but from a stranger? No. But little does she know that the blood of Christ is thicker even 
than the Chinese blood. Not Chinese blood, but you know what I mean. <laughs> we have to cut that off, right? Yeah. Blood is thicker than water comes from a Chinese proverb, which, which comes from the fact that Chinese believe that the family bond is the strongest ever. But little does she know that the blood of Christ transcends even that. Now, let me end uh, by reading to you where it all started for Paul when he wrote the first letter, 1 Corinthians. It reminds us why, out of his love for the Corinthians, Paul had to painstakingly write these letters to them because they live in a world in which the gospel has turned upside down or rather right side up. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, For indeed, Jew asked for signs and Greek searched for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Why do you and me need to fight every day to believe in the gospel? Well, because the rest of the world don't. They see it as foolish, they see it as weak. But 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have intervened in this world, this world of suffering and grief, this world of foolishness and of rebellion against you. Thank you, Father, that you transcend our wisdom, you transcend our rebellion and our sinful nature. Thank you that in your grace and your mercy towards us, uh, you have sent your son, Jesus, that he died for all our foolishness, he died for all our sins. And that we can now be reconciled to you, we can now be forgiven. Thank you that we are now part of your church here in St. Mary. Thank you that you live amongst us in your presence. Father, we thank you for feeding us with your word in 2 Corinthians. We pray that your word will take roots in our hearts, will change and transform us for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.